to finish it, right? There was no option really to bail out, at least not in my mind. And so having that house forced me to put the the basement suite in and every house after that, just having a project that had a clear end in sight really kept me moving forward. And in that way, uh, real estate was really good, you know, sort of kept me on track. Whereas if I was left to my own devices, I may have given up a little earlier, you know, say I was saving money to invest it instead. I might not have been able to stay on on the path like real estate kind of forced me to. So that was probably one lucky key. My success is just that after committing to the purchase of the home, I was I had to stay with it. Real estate kind of forces you to do that. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, a show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 294. Stace, you're celebrating Mother's Day. I'm glad to have you back on here for the intro, partly because I think it's it's uh, fitting for, for this time of year as we just celebrated Mother's Day yesterday. Happy Mother's Day, or belated Mother's Day and Mother's Day today, I guess, to you and all the mothers and wonderful women out there that make the world go around and make us all better. The other thing uh, I wanted to bring you on to do this intro a little bit is because this is one of the very few guests that you have actually hung out with with me. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the Mother's Day shout out and happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers, aspiring mothers, aunts, fur moms. <laughs> um, yes, I got a chance to meet this guest, so that was fun. Uh, usually you go solo to meet listeners, although you had already just had them on the podcast. I am not the... I'm not a host on this interview, but I did get to meet him after the interview. I've not listened to this interview, but it was really fun getting to just chat with him about his journey a little bit. And really, I thought it was fun. He peppered you with questions. He said, I listen to you ask people questions all the time. And you just asked me all these questions recording for this podcast. But let me turn this around on you, Jace. So that was fun for him to talk with us about what our financial journey has looked like. One thing that I loved about meeting up with Stu is I didn't realize Stu traveled, I think, four hours to meet up with us, but he made it happen to come visit us. He made a night of it, and we really appreciate him and really anyone who reaches out from the podcast. It's so fun. Obviously, Jace is is more hands-on than than I am, but I love I love supporting the podcast and all of our listeners and appreciate you. This has been something that's been so fun for Jace to do. And I really, I really have fun cheering him on along the way uh, as he interviews all of you and, and shares the, this wealth of knowledge, all puns intended, uh, on uh, on finance and, and personal wealth. Yeah, no, we had a, a great time with Stu and and uh, his his friend. In fact, his friend was pretty interesting. He was he was a stunt man. Does uh travels around and for. And does stunts for a living so great uh great time with him i think i was kind of trying to add it up the other day especially recently i've actually gone together with quite a few listeners luckily i've had quite a few that have been in the texas area so it's been a little bit easier for for myself but um yeah and we've had kind of ironic we've had quite a few of these people want to get together and we've discussed doing some sort of meetup over the years and whatnot but i think i may put something together a little more formal maybe for the 
the fall time when my schedule is a little bit more open. Maybe I'll uh, host a meetup or something in Austin. We'll see. Uh, but at any rate, I had a really interesting, uh, I got a really interesting email that came in uh, that I want to read real quick. It says, with the amount of debt our country holds, is it wise to invest in its economy? If our country was a company, it doesn't seem like it would be a good idea to buy its shares. Why does our debt level only seem bad to investors if we don't raise the limit annually? Real interesting thought and question, and I'm sure a lot of people, especially as this has been a, a hot topic recently, and I thought it was very fitting for some of the things that Stu uh, brought up on our podcast about money and banking and you know how the financial system really works and and kind of what has to happen for that to continue. So we get into a little bit of discussion, which may be real boring for some people. I don't know. Uh, but it is interesting. And I think it's interesting to understand, especially as we see, you know, at least in the last, at least for as long as most people can remember in the last little bit here, we've moved away from, you know, what was traditionally, you know, 0% interest rates for, for quite some time. And we've seen rates increase pretty drastically pretty quickly uh, in an effort that the Fed, especially the United States, has has put forth to curb uh, inflation. And so far, it seems like it may be working. Uh, time will tell. And we've seen a little bit of some of these tech companies and other companies slow down and have some layoffs and whatnot. But uh, I think it's a, it's a great point. You know, just from my standpoint, I think the United States economy, regardless of what the government does is made up of of great people and you know great entrepreneurs great uh, executives great people great education in general and i think that uh, the economy is pretty resilient and i think we'll figure it out regardless of of kind of the cycles that take place now could the the debt and the debt ceiling and things that the government does and can we spend our way or <laughs> essentially create money forever and ever and ever i don't know uh, that's kind of a mind-boggling thing to think of we only had i think one us president ever to pay down the national debt i think that was jackson back in Actually, I'm not even sure when he was. It's been a minute since I've had U.S. history. But uh, anyway, so time will tell. Time will tell. But uh, it's a great observation. And it's a good thing that we don't have to invest in our country so much as an investment as we can invest in its people and the companies that, that our people run and start. So, and I, personally, I will do that forever. Uh, you know, I looked at returns overall. I know that we had some discussions on this previously related to, you know, just international investments and what that makeup should be and for the most part international has, has trailed you know overall from a from a sector uh, standpoint. Now, there's obviously anomalies here and there, but overall, an international fund ha has trailed, you know, an S&P or, or some other type funds. So great, great question. Appreciate you writing that in. As we mentioned today on the show, we've got Stu. He's got a net worth of $3.7 Most of that is in uh, real estate, actually. He's got about 29 k in a TFSA, which is like a retirement account, and then 25 k in education savings account. He's got a pension of 200 k His wife has a pension of 60k and his cash of 45k and the rest uh, just under 3.4 million is in real estate equities firefighter and his wife is a nurse so uh back-to-back -back firefighters and 
to some degree, I couldn't be more grateful for firefighters as we were out of town last week. We had lightning strike in our neighborhood and actually burn a house. So uh, pretty wild, um, hitting close to home. But the, those firefighters, you know, put that out and kept it at that one house. So it's a crazy story, but definitely thankful for for all those in public service around the country and definitely in my own neighborhood this uh, past week. So uh, last week we had Robert, net worth of three point five million, he had a pension about six hundred to two million. So quite a, quite a bit there in that pension. He's retired. Another $2 million in investable assets. Great episode with him. Uh, would love to, to continue to get uh, a few more ratings and reviews. Appreciate those that have uh, done so already. Please uh, go ahead to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you listen, and uh, leave us a rating and review. It's a nice way to thank the guests that come on and uh, share their stories and helps us continue to grow the show and, and get more guests and, and expand uh the footprint. If you haven't heard your story on, on the podcast yet and you're thinking about coming on, do it. Send us an email, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com, and we'll get you scheduled. And without any further discussion, I think that takes care of all the housekeeping today. Let's get into the interview with Stu. Stu, do you want to just give everybody a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. My name's Stu. I'm 42 years old. I've been a firefighter for 18 years. I've been married for 10 to my wife, Jen. She's a nurse, and we have a five-year-old daughter together. Great. And, and what's your net worth today? So I was just adding it up for the show, and I think it's at about $3.7 million. Man, so a firefighter and a nurse, how do you get $3.7 million? What is that? What's the allocation of that? So it's almost all real estate, but in my um, investment account, I have 4200 bucks in cash, I've got 29500 in a TFSA, that's a tax-free savings account, and I've got uh, $15,000 in an education savings account for my daughter. And then in my personal checking account, I've got 45000 Then I've got a pension through the fire department, uh, currently worth about 200000 and my wife's pension is uh, worth about 60000 and then the real estate makes up the majority of that. And so my equity in the real estate is about $3.365 million. Wow. And how, how has the real estate come about? Yeah. So I bought my first, my first house when I was uh, 27. So a couple of years after I started as a firefighter. And I'd wanted to own a house since I was 16. I read this book my aunt gave me called The Wealthy Barber. And uh, in that, one of the things the barber did to get wealthy was to simply buy a single family home, live in it for a long time. And when it was all paid off, he went and bought a second home and rented out the first one. So that was kind of my plan. That's what I wanted to do since I was 16. It just took a long time to uh, pull the trigger and buy the first house. Um, and, and is the real estate equity at this point all single family homes? Yeah. So I, I bought that first single family house and and that was 2007, like I said. And then in 2013, uh, after marrying Jen, our combined incomes and money I'd been able to save up for a second down payment on a new home, we, we went and purchased the second house. So again, it was a single family home. Although I should say I did a bit of what they call today house hacking. So in that first house, I put a basement suite in. So I lived upstairs and I put a basement suite in. And then when we moved out, I was able to rent it top and bottom and it more than covered the expenses on the home. And then we moved into the second home and we kind of did the same thing. We quickly 
fixed up the upstairs. We redid the floors and put in new doors and changed the window treatments and painted the whole thing out. And then we put in two basement suites. We put in a one bedroom on one side and we put in a bachelor on the other side for Jen's mom. And it took a couple of years to get all that done. But at the end of the two years, I put the numbers together and I said to Jen, you know, if we rented out the upstairs of this house, like if we weren't living here, this thing with cash flow was, uh, you know, it seemed crazy to me. Like, I think I've just like broken the system or something. And so we quickly bought, so that was 2015. We bought our third house and we moved into that. And then that was one of the crazy upticks in the real estate market. So we bought that third house in November of 2015 for $465,000, sorry, $565,000. And by the next summer, we'd done the same thing, renovated upstairs and put in a basement suite. But besides that forced depreciation, the house would have been worth $750,000, no problem. While we were still doing that renovation, uh, we bought our fourth home, which was the biggest project that we had taken on to that date. And it was a full gut, uh, including perimeter drains and then, uh, you know, electrical upgrade, all the everything. And we put in, suited it up and down. And that was uh, probably our best cash flowing asset to date. So, and then you did a couple more after that, correct? Yeah. So, so during that last uh, renovation that I mentioned to you, um, we we bought that home, and then like a month later, found out that Jen was pregnant with our with our first child, our only child. And um, by the time uh, our daughter was born. I was kind of stuck right in the middle of that rental and Jen needed my help and I needed her help for the reno. It was, it was actually kind of a really hard time. And I think because of all that stress of the reno and the, and the new baby and everything, I wasn't allowed. <laughs> I don't know if I can say this. I wasn't allowed to buy another house really at that point, but about uh, nine months after we finished that reno, I saw a house pop up on the, on the market. And uh, I convinced Jen that this was uh, a great little house because we could just move into it. And it didn't have a suite in the basement, so we didn't have to worry about tenants with the kid. And uh, eventually, at some point in the future, we could put in a garden suite in the back because there was a, there was a little laneway running behind the house. So it, it let us do something a little different which is what I did. And then, uh, and I promised her that I would hire out all the work for, for building that garden suite. And of course I didn't, I put, I did way more work than I, than I meant to. And so that should have been it. But then uh, about a year and a half ago, okay, I should say this. <laughs> so we moved into that house, uh, the little house and we put in a garden suite in the back. It took a couple of years to do that. And then we moved into this garden suite. It's a 600 square foot garden suite. And me and Jen and, and the, and the two-year-old were living in that thing for a year. And then we had the equity available to buy something else. And I think we overcompensated for the small space we were living in. And we ended up buying a huge house by our standards, uh, about 4,500 square feet, including a 1,000-square-foot suite. And uh, so that was the last house that we bought. That is amazing. Um, taking a 
bit of a step back. I'm just curious, what, what is your background in actually doing the renos and how did you get smart on that? <laughs> okay, so first of all, overconfidence helped a lot. I thought before I bought my house that, oh yeah, no problem, I can do all this work. I don't even think that the uh, you know HGTV or like those home reno shows, I don't think those were very popular, at least I hadn't watched them, but I just thought it would be easy, you know? How hard could it be to refinish a hardwood floor or put in a basement suite? But um, it was actually, it was actually really hard. And, uh, you know, I used, I really leaned on the guys in the fire department for one, and then uh, YouTube, and which was kind of new back then, 2007. I, I leaned on, yeah, the guys at work and YouTube for a lot of help. But uh, really, I, you know, school of hard knocks. So that first basement suite, it took me a year to build, which is quite slow. But it only cost me $18,000 at the time, which was really low for a renovation budget. And, um, and then moving on to the next one, I was, I was a lot smarter and I also knew what I wanted to hire out because I was slow at and uh, what would be worth paying somebody else to do, which really helped. So that next renovation, even though it cost $55,000, it only took me maybe seven months to do. I kind of, I kind of learned as I went and I, I would always, you know, on the, I, even if I hired somebody to work, I'd always be there helping and learning, you know, you, even drywall boarding and taping and sanding and mudding and stuff like everything. I, I kind of like it. I kind of like doing that work. So I was interested in it and uh, I was happy to do it. Uh, and, and how close are these to your actual primary home or, um, or far away? Oh, great question. Uh, yeah. So they're all really close. They're in a tight little circle and I can do the drive from my house and hit all five other properties and back to my house in less than 15 minutes. Holy cow. So, and are you finding all these on, on MLS or do you have a realtor? Or? Yeah. So there was a guy at work and he was kind of the real estate guru. He uh, built homes on the side and he was always renovating his own primary residence and then flipping it every, you know, three to five years. And then he had a bunch of rentals. So I asked him one day if I could have his realtor's name and she's been my realtor on every deal that I've done. And she's, she's been great. So every house that I bought, I just got off of MLS. I didn't, there was no tricky thing to it. I probably, you know, slightly overpaid or paid market value for every property that I owned, but it just really didn't matter because the numbers, numbers worked, you know, from house for house three and four, I could, I just knew I'm like at the price that they're asking, I can pay full price. I can do an expensive reno. And when I rent it out at the end, this thing's going to cash flow, which is incredible. So just for context for our listeners, are most of these in a higher cost of living area or would you call it medium cost or low cost? Well, we're on a small Island, uh, you know, in Canada. So like land is, uh, valuable here, uh, median, single family home price is over a million dollars. So now, and when I bought my first house, it was 400,000. Wow. So compared to, yes, compared to a lot of the people I hear on your podcast, that seems really expensive, but it's just, you know, I grew up here, so it's all I've really known. Yeah, for sure. So in, in terms of like your portfolio, your net worth, obviously a good chunk of it's in that real estate equity 
are, are you done buying real estate or are you going to keep buying more? <laughs> I, you know, I'm done for now. I, uh, I want to stay married more than I want to buy another real estate property, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, definitely in the future as you know, cash flow increases and equity builds, you know, it'll be hard not to reinvest that money into something. Although I could reinvest that into the stock market instead, because I am pretty unbalanced right now, I feel. So I wouldn't mind. Uh, I wouldn't mind making that, making that more balanced. My accountant has been to- telling me to uh, to invest more in in uh, the stock market since I bought my second home. He's probably right. And what what's holding you back there from from going for the stock market as well? I guess I'm. I haven't really been great at saving money. You know, I make about $100,000 a year, you know, maybe one sixty if you include my wife's income, but hanging on to that money, at least enough to make a, a meaningful investment has uh, been a challenge for me. Whereas real estate, you know, that just grew. And then maybe I could have taken the equity from real estate and invested that in the stock market, but it seemed so, it seems so risky to borrow money to invest in the stock market. Am I wrong there? Do people do that? Do they borrow money to invest in the stock market? Some people do. And they have margin calls and sometimes they get in trouble and sometimes they make a lot of money. <laughs> just about like anything else, right? I don't know. I guess real estate's just uh, what I know. It makes sense to me. You know, it's a it's like a real physical asset. And, you know, I can kind of see the writing on the wall of where the prices are inevitably going to end up given enough time. So it just seems safe to me. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. If you've ever thought to yourself, what if we could reverse the root causes of aging, then listen closely. Our new sponsor, OneSkin, puts science and research first. Founded by a team of four female PhD-level longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience, OneSkin sets out not to just decrease the visible signs of aging, but to treat the root cause of skin causes of skin aging. I'm talking essential face moisturizer, eye topical supplement to firm, and a topical body supplement to keep your body moisturized so skin doesn't look just younger and healthier. It functions like younger and healthier skin. But how you may ask, OneSkin's products are formulated with their own OSO1 peptide as the primary active ingredient to support the skin's ability to resist the effects of intrinsic and extrinsic aging factors. Their flagship product, OSO1 Face, is clinically proven to strengthen the skin barrier and improved key skin health markers, meaning signs of aging significantly diminished for a limited time our listeners can get 15% off one skin with our code millionaire at oneskin.co oneskin is the world's first longevity company oneskin addresses skin health at the molecular level targeting the root causes of aging and so skin behaves feels and appears younger it's time to get started with your new face eye and body routine at a discounted rate today Get 15% off with the code millionaire at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code millionaire. We only have one body, one skin, and you can only choose to make it better. Age healthy with one skin. And thanks again to OneSkin for supporting today's episode. I'm curious if you were talking to someone who's just getting started, would you recommend they follow in your footsteps today if they were starting off today? That's a tough one. I mean, if I was starting out today, I couldn't do it exactly as 
I did it, you know, um, 13 years ago. Whenever I started, I, I, I wouldn't be able to do the same thing. But uh, definitely real estate as a vehicle would be great. Probably if I, if I started from today and I was starting from scratch, Airbnb or student rentals would be the way I would go. House hacking with, with student rentals or, or Airbnb to make it uh, help, help pay for the mortgage kind of thing. Yeah, I feel like I was lucky, you know, that I was in a rare period of history where I live where you could buy a house and put in a suite and if you rented it top and bottom it would cash flow because you definitely can't do that today. I mean, I see things come across uh, the MLS every once in a while, maybe like once a month where I kind of run the numbers as a student rental because we have the university here and and it, and it would cash flow neutral maybe if you rented it for a thousand dollars a bedroom but that's about as good as it gets studio the the people that you associate with do they invest in real estate as well well so most of the guys at the fire hall they own a home and uh the guys that have been there long enough they've seen a lot of appreciation i mean since 2013 until now so like a little less than 10 years house prices have easily doubled so Anybody at work that has owned a home for 10 years has, you know, 500, 500K of equity in their property, most likely. So in that way, lots of people I know invest in real estate. But as far as as far as owning multiple properties and, and rentals, it's it's not so common. No. Is there ever any inclination to, to sell one of these and just cash out and have a bunch of cash sitting on the sidelines? Oh, man, that was a discussion last spring that I was bringing to the guys at work every day because I just didn't know what to do. The writing was on the wall that the interest rates were going to be going up and I didn't want to lose anything that I had, but I also didn't want to lose it all. So I, I, I didn't know what to do. I thought about it for a long time and I made my decision not to sell anything and play the long term game. But yeah, I mean, I could, I was just doing the numbers. I could sell it all today. And with the capital gains I'd pay and the realtor fees, I'd still walk away with over $2 million. So that's still a possible exit. But I just don't think I'm going to go there. I should say too, though, that, that last summer, I was in a pretty bad spot cash flow wise because the interest rates went so high and so fast. I found myself owing if you averaged out the payments and expenses over the year i owed four thousand dollars a month more than i was collecting in rent which was uh kind of a scary position to be in uh as of june 15th this year i'll be cash flow neutral again which is a little more comfortable but still a risky spot and who knows in a year hopefully these interest rates come down a bit more Maybe rents will go up, and and I'll and I'll start building that cash flow back up. Wow, that's pretty rough. So, are these all on variable rates then? No, so the mortgages are fixed, but but uh, I guess it was in spring of 2021. I went to the bank and asked, you know, how much money will you guys give me? Because you know inflation was going crazy. I probably had a bit of FOMO. And I just wanted to throw my money 
into some kind of investment. And the bank ended up giving me uh, $800,000, which was really nice of them. Thanks, bank. And I spent it all pretty quick. I spent uh, $200,000 buying a share of an apartment building in Toronto uh, through a real estate meetup group I belong to. And then I spent uh, $200,000 or so um, buying a fix and flip with a, with a friend and another $100,000 renovating that. And then I spent uh, $400,000 as a down payment on the new primary residence. And if you've been doing the math, you realize that's more than the bank lent me by about $100,000, which is why, partly why I was in such a terrible spot last summer. But we did sell the fix and flip uh, just uh, just before Christmas, and that made things a lot better. And also so you, that, so I'm just thinking for for our listeners. So you took a line of credit out against some of the equity, basically. Yeah, you got. Or it. did That's, they just give you a new loan? It, yeah, it's, so it's a, a line of credit against one of the properties. And I guess, I guess I should say that's how I bankrolled all of these all of mm-hmm. these properties. So the first one. Oh, I was going to say I saved the down payment, but there was actually a little trickery involved there. I had been able to save up over two years, only $10,000, and I needed $10,000 for closing costs, and I needed $20,000 as a down payment. And so what I did is uh, just a a few days before the um, conditions were set to come off on this house, I got a $10,000 loan from a bank. And then I immediately took that full $10,000 out as a bank draft. And then I went to a second bank and got another $10,000 loan in the same day, took that money out as a uh, bank draft, and then opened a new account at the same teller window without going anywhere, opened a new bank account and deposited both these checks into that to that new bank account and then got them to print me off a piece of paper that showed $20,000 in this bank account free and clear. And I took that to the mortgage broker and then he got me a loan. So I didn't actually save for that down payment. Yeah. You can't do that. Now you have to show, you have to show that there's three months, uh, that the money's been in the account for three months today. So you can't do that. Don't try that. But it worked for me. And then, uh, the second house, I was able to save up $25,000 for the down payment that I needed. And uh, every house after that, I just pulled equity out of the homes in the way of a line of credit, a secured line of head, uh, credit against the homes. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. C- congrats to you. I mean, having the forethought to do that and then two, the risk tolerance to do something like that, right? That that you've been able to 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 build your net worth you know, through the appreciation and through fixing up a lot of these properties and increasing the value, you know, that's not easy. Yeah, it was, uh, there was some really tough moments for sure. It brought me to my knees a few times, but, uh, I could see, I could, I was certain that it was a good decision in the long run, uh, provided I could hang on in the intern, kind of like at the, like the spot I'm in now, like it seems pretty crazy to have, you know, five full rentals uh, worth millions of dollars and bringing in just enough cash to cover the expenses—that's pretty crazy. That's that seems really risky, but 
you know, my understanding of how things work makes me tolerate that risk. Maybe I could actually talk about that. Maybe it's something that would be interesting to other people. No, I think that that's great. I I did want to ask just in general, how has your risk tolerance changed over, you know, time with this or has it? But yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on risk and risk tolerance and how you think about that for sure. Sure. So when I bought that first home, I just, I was really clueless. So it was just pure ignorance that allowed me to overextend myself into that home. And I, I really hung on by a thread. I remember I was working full time. I had a girlfriend paying rent. I had a roommate paying rent and I was working full time on the side doing sewers and drains for 20 bucks cash an hour. And at the end of the year, you know, I came up for air and realized that I was exactly where I was a year before. I hadn't paid off any more debt. I wasn't, I was no better off than I was, you know, at the beginning of that year. And then that's when I started doing the renovation to the basement suite. And I actually put it all on credit cards and it was just by the skin of my teeth. It took a year to do. I called in every favor that I had. And, um, I remember I rented it out for January 1st and I had just enough money to pay all my bills. And then I got a big cash injection because we had renegotiated our contract and they were three years behind. And so I got like three years of retroactive pay. And, it, you know, all it did was give me a few more months to make it through. So it was just ignorance that, that I took the risk on in the first place. But then around uh, 2011, I really like went down the rabbit hole with you know, how the banking system works and how money is created. And I came out with like a couple of realizations that most money that's created is for loans or, or for um, mortgages, you know, loans against property. And so the, the, as an asset class, properties will rise uh, a little bit faster than everything else and a little bit faster than inflation. That might be a lot to digest there. Maybe I should back it up a little bit. Okay, so I learned that when banks, that banks create new money when they make loans, which seems so crazy, so crazy, but they they do. And then also new money is created when the government prints dollar bills or mints coins. But that government money is only like 3% of the money supply. So like most of the money is when banks make loans. I always thought it was like grandma's savings that the banks were loaning out to me. But when I found out that like banks are making new money, they're creating new money when they're giving you a loan, I no longer saw the bank as someone carefully doling out a finite supply of grandma's savings to the safest customer. Instead, I realized that the banks want to give you money, but they also need to remain solvent. So if you can fit inside their little box of qualifications, they'll give you the money. They'll be happy to give you the money. And then uh, there's another uh, part that is inflation. So we have like a debt debt-based money system. So when the banks create the money in the form of a loan, they create that new money, but they don't create the money to pay the interest. So to like oversimplify things a little bit, we have to constantly create new money to service the interest on the money we've already created, which is why zero inflation, 0% inflation is doesn't really work. And we need a little bit to keep the system alive. So the government target in Canada of inflation is between one and three percent. But even at you know two percent, that makes money 
half as valuable in 30 years. And the inflation we've been having recently, like last year, might have been 9% or 10%. Like the, the speed at which money is being devalued is crazy. And so what that means as a real estate investor is that simply put, money will be worth less in the future. So the further into the future you go, the less value that money will hold. And applying that to real estate investment over enough time, your rent will go up through inflation. The value of your property will likely go up with appreciation. And then the real cost of the loan will be less when you factor in, factor in the future value of money. That all makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it's wild. So, Stu, I want to I read something from, from your intake form. And I'm going to start off with one of the lines in here. You said, banks love firefighter and nurse couples. <laughs> Which, which it sounds like they've been very friendly to you. So oh, super friendly. Y- you say, and I don't, I'm just going to read this verbatim regarding some advice. You said, all the things I didn't do, save your money, invest your money, find a mentor, work to learn, not to earn. Do what I sort of did. Invest in yourself by learning about things that interest you that can make you money. Do what I did do. I was a horrible saver, but my dad showed me how to save for things and it did work for me. I started this around 2010 and it helped me so much more than I ever would have guessed. There are certain expenses that you can count on every year or month, taxes, insurance, utilities, food, clothing, car repairs, and then specific things you might want to save for, such as a new vehicle or vacation or new computer. And what finally worked for me was that I set up a separate savings account for all things and had the money come out of my account the day after my paycheck was deposited. Wow. So it was really talk poetic. to us a little bit about these savings accounts. Why did you set that up and how is that working for you? Yeah, so just as you were reading there, I set that up out of desperation, really. Um, after I bought my house, I got this business credit card. And the way that it worked, and I didn't understand it, I guess I didn't pay attention, is that every month it would give you your statement, but it would clear the balance from the month before into some like central location that would no longer show up on your monthly statements. It was really weird. And I just was not on top of my finances. And at the end of the year, I had way more money than I thought I should. And I bought myself this fancy new computer. And then I was out to breakfast a couple months later and my credit card got declined. It's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And I called them up and sure enough, I hadn't been making payments on my credit card because I'd just be late and then it would disappear. And I was just so frustrated with myself that I was so irresponsible with money. And here I am like trying to use real estate as a vehicle to build wealth. And I couldn't even save, save any money for my paycheck. So I was explaining this to my dad and he showed me what he did. And it was really simple. He just took all of those set expenses. He made a separate account for each one. And then he had it automatically come come out of his bank account the day after his paycheck was deposited. So I followed the same thing and it has worked so good over the last 15 years or however long I've been using it. <clears throat> and in more ways than just having the exact amount of money to pay for the exact thing I was saving for. It, if I, I had a surprise bill come up or a surprise expense come up, I could borrow from myself temporarily and pay for that. Like this, the, my checking account, that $45,000 that I have in my checking account, 
most of that money is spoken for in one way or another. But if I really needed it, I could I could use it tomorrow. So it's really been a game changer. Stu, one one question, thinking about how this fits into the context of your your career and, and your life outside of real estate. Uh, you know, does it feel like you're living two lives here? Do you, do your coworkers know? How does this fit in to, um, you know, your broader career and, and whether you want to keep that for a long time or not? Yeah, it's funny you ask that. So we've got this saying at the fire hall, telegram, telephone, tell a firefighter. And it just speaks to how quick word travels around the fire hall. So it's no, it's no surprise to anybody uh, that I own multiple homes you know, because they've all, most of them have like worked with me on the basement suites at some point or another. So it's pretty well known around the fire hall that I own these multiple properties. So it doesn't feel like a double life. Like I'm not hiding anything from anybody. And I feel like uh, construction, the construction side of thing kind of ties in with the, with the uh, job of being a firefighter. You know, being aware of, of home construction helps when you go into a burning building. So it's not really like a double life. Stu, how do you and your wife divide up the labor with the child that you have now at home? And, and how, do you, how do you go about you know, that responsibility in addition to, to your investments? Yes. So knock on wood, the investments don't take up a ton of time since they were all renovated, super high quality renovations by me. Uh, there's not a ton of problems. So it doesn't take a lot of time. But then my wife also just started a, a new position as a nurse. And her schedule actually works perfectly around mine. So they never overlap. This is just new in the last few months. So for childcare, we actually don't need any, which is great. And also, my mother-in-law lives in the basement suite. And then my dad and his wife live just a block away at one of the other rental properties. They actually rent a place for me too. So it's, it's kind of pretty fantastic right now for us as far as childcare goes, because the grandparents are always happy to, always happy to take uh, my daughter and, uh, or their grandchild. And uh, yeah, life is pretty sweet right now. Have you and your spouse always been on, on the same page regarding money and investments? Well, I think my wife grew up, quite poor as a kid and I was more middle class or maybe lower middle class and her financial goal was always not to be poor and my financial goal ever since reading The Wealthy Barber was to be rich. Um, So, you know, I've always wanted a little more than she did and, uh, you know, she's been the one kind of bringing it back to reality, uh, sort of enough is enough and and, you know, let's spend some time together. Let's go on vacation. You know, let's take a break. So I really thank her for that because otherwise I'd just probably be working 24-7. But I think, I think she's happy with where we are now. And as long as I'm there for our daughter and for her, then I, I think everything's fine. In, in regards to the, the way that you mentioned you're wired or that you were wanting to, to be rich ever since you read The Wealthy Barber, it, it, is there a level of contentment that you felt throughout this journey 
is there something you're saving for or wanting to get that net worth for? Is there a level of comfort that comes with that? Or, or what is that psychologically for you? Or do you know? Yeah, so it's kind of a moving target. But like I related to you from The Wealthy Barber, uh, my original goal was just to have two single family homes, one that I lived in and one that I rented out. But then uh, in 2001, my aunt, same aunt that got me that book, set me up with a mortgage broker friend of hers and he laid out a path to wealth for me where you buy one half duplex every year for 10 years. And at the end of the 10 years, you go back to the original duplex and you can borrow $100,000 out of that property because, because you should have by that time paid $100,000 of equity off on that property. And then he said, you just do that every year. And at the end of another 10 years, you go back to the first property. So because of that, I think I've had in my head for a long time that I was going to stop at 10, um, uh, 10 homes, but it's kind of an arbitrary number. And really, I probably should have stopped uh, in the summer of 2021 before I, before I went and reinvested all the equity from the properties. Hindsight's always 2020, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's wrap wrap up with some rapid fire questions. What's the most expensive pair of shoes you've purchased? A few years ago, I was training for an ultra marathon run. And so I was trying to find the right pair of shoes. And I bought a few that were close to $200. Okay. What about the most expensive meal out that you've paid for? That would have been last month. We went down to Disneyland and it was uh, $320 American. Holy cow. For three of y'all? <laughs> Uh, well, no, we had, uh, Jen's dad and his wife there as well. Okay. Goofy's so you, kitchen. You, you were helping. What's yeah. the, uh, most expensive experience or vacation that you've paid for? Probably 10 days in Mexico for the three of us. I think that was about $7,000. Although a lot of that came, uh, was paid for by points we had on the credit card, but probably an easy $5,000 on a vacation anyway. Okay. Is there anything on your bucket list that you're still looking forward to shortly? I, I'd really like to go back to Mexico. We were kind of on the fence of whether we were going to go to Disneyland or Mexico. And uh, Disneyland seemed a lot cheaper at the time, even though it was only $1,000 cheaper in the end. And so now we both want to go to Mexico again. Love it down there. If you were to be a college professor, what class would you teach? Yes, sir. I'd really enjoy teaching something on financial education, I guess. Okay. We talked about income. We talked about target net worth. What do you think has been the key to your success? Probably just, okay, when you bought, when I, when I bought a house, like when I bought that first house, I was kind of forced to to finish it, right? There was no option really to bail out, at least not in my mind. And so having that house forced me to put the the basement suite in and every house after that, just having a project that had a clear end in sight really kept me moving forward. And in that way, uh, real estate was really good, you know, sort of kept me on track. Whereas if I was left to my own devices, I may have given up a little earlier, you know, say I was saving money to invest it instead, I might not have been able to stay on, on the path like real estate kind of forced me to. So 
that was probably one lucky key to my success is just that after committing to the purchase of the home, I was I had to stay with it. And that real estate kind of forces you to do that. Okay. I'm gonna wrap up with a, a listener question. Timing or luck, belief in yourself or hard work, how would you rank those? Like rank those from one to four? Yeah, timing dash luck. So they're including that one as kind of the same one. So one to three. Okay. Well, I think mindset is everything. So you gotta have you gotta have that belief or build that belief in yourself. Me personally, getting to the level of wealth I'm at now, that was a lot of luck. I mean, the appreciation of the market that I just happened to live in, that was lucky. But it also took a ton of hard work, a ton of hard work. So it's tough to say. That would go belief number one, luck number two, hard work number three. Good deal. Any last words of advice? No, but I do have an interesting story about Bitcoin, if you care. Yeah, for sure. Let's okay. hear it. So in 2011, like I told you, I got super deep down the rabbit hole, all about money. I was super obsessed. And I ended up joining this group, uh, Ideas Victoria, it was called. And this this group, this Ideas group, it was just like 12 uh, nerds. And I use that term uh, in a positive way. 12 nerds around a table. And I went to this meeting and they were talking about Bitcoin. I was like, what's Bitcoin? I was the only guy that didn't know. And they spent the next 45 minutes kind of schooling me on what Bitcoin was. And the sort of takeaway was, so you could invest $5,000 now and it could go really high or you might lose everything. And I had the $5,000 because I had already started saving for the down payment on the second home. And I had gotten one of the guys to help me go through the motions of buying this Bitcoin. And I was like probably a keystroke or two away from buying Bitcoin, $5,000 of Bitcoin. And I changed my mind at the last second and said, no, I'll invest in real estate because it's a safer investment at $5,000 of Bitcoin, you know, even in, even in, uh, 2020 when it wasn't even at the peak, it was like $10 million. Wow. That's wild. What it could have been. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But look what you are now. You you got a great skill in real estate and Bitcoin's taking a plunge. So granted, I'm sure you'd still be worth, I mean, be worth a lot of money if you put five grand in Bitcoin 10 years ago anyway. But at any rate, Stu, net worth approaching $4 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.